Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, who's the WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief. Today, we're talking with our guests today about the recently authorized COVID-19 vaccine for children. According to the FDA, the Pfizer vaccine is more than 90% effective in preventing COVID-19 in children. However, a lot of parents are still unsure whether to get their kids vaccinated. We have four guests with us who are going to talk with us about this issue today. Catherine Head is the is IUPUI Associate Professor of Communications. She specializes in how people communicate about vaccines. Dr. Tom Rasmalis is an IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians Provider. He specializes in infectious disease. Graham McKean is Assistant University Director of Public and Environmental Health. Uh, at IU, and Amy Meek is the Registered Nurse Program Manager at IU Health. If you have questions or comments, please uh, send us an email to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We can get your questions there, and our producers will get them to us, and we'll get them on the air. I want to start with Graham McKean. Graham, we have a long history here. I believe it was January of 2020. We did our first show about this. It might have even been in December of 2019. I can't remember for sure. Um, Did you expect that this long end of the pandemic, we'd still be talking about this? Um, Sadly, yes. Uh, I'm one of the, the few people I remember texting and, and notifying some colleagues that, you know, we expect this to at least be a two-year event for us. Um, how it's played out in the path we've gotten there and where we are now, maybe you didn't expect all those things and certainly um, have been humbled quite a bit. Um, it's still a pandemic. Um, it's still not over uh, as much as we want it to be. And we're just, you know, coming off the latest and second worst wave with the Delta variant in the U.S. And cases are actually increasing globally for the first time since the end of August, and now it seems the U.S. has actually plateaued a bit. Um, Over half the U.S. states have flat or increasing cases, and Indiana's done the same. And honestly, it's it's a pretty high plateau. It's an uncomfortable plateau if you look at the map, um, considering we're heading into winter and, you know, respiratory virus season, so that's a bit of a concern. But I also would say, you know, things are different with vaccines, and, you know, cases are not equal uh, necessarily if you are vaccinated, depending on where you live. I mean, a a more highly vaccinated community is is less tethered to the case numbers uh, as they are to the reality of that virus's impact, right? Much fewer people getting severely ill, hospitalized, or dying. But if you are vaccinated, you've greatly reduced that risk and can do many of those more things safely. And if you're still concerned, obviously, you continue to avoid high-risk settings, uh, get boosters if you're eligible, continue to mask indoors, etc. But I think, you know, an endemic COVID-19 virus is likely our future. When and how we get there may be a bit subjective right now, and um, still a lot of ongoing debate about which metrics to look at or considerations of, of when we kind of reach that transition. Uh, but you know, the expectation that it will become endemic essentially means that the, the pandemic will not end with the virus disappearing. We've only ever eradicated one human disease ever, and there are many reasons why we were able to do that with smallpox, and they're basically the converse of why COVID-19 will never be eradicated. So I think instead the optimistic view at this point is that uh, we get enough people to get immune protection from vaccination through natural infection. We just had a lot of natural infection with Delta. I think that'll help insulate us slightly this winter. Um, And we certainly hope that along with uh, this wonderful news that we have 28 million 
U.S. children now eligible for vaccines going to help us get to this end goal of being an endemic virus. Um, So we need to make this more like the flu, even though that can still infect millions and kill tens of thousands every year. But it's generally much more manageable uh, and it can be more easily controlled. You know, during peak flu season, maybe we we lose 100 Americans a day with COVID at this exact moment. Um, And this is coming off the big peak of Delta. We are still losing 1,200 Americans a day from COVID-19, of course, nearly all completely preventable with a free vaccine. So so we're not there yet, but we've still got 70,000 cases a day uh, across the U.S. uh, And the virus remains a bit unpredictable in patterns and spread. Um, so this is still uh, very much a pandemic for us. All right. Well, thank you. We'll get into a lot of these details. Uh, I wanted to ask Dr. Tom Rismalis, you've been looking at this from the local level. So, um, A, what's what's our status locally here with IU Health and hospitalizations in Bloomington? And the second part of the question is, what about this news that children can become vaccinated now? How How significant is that? Tom, I think you have your mute on. From the local level, I think what we've seen reflects what has been happening statewide and countrywide. Our cases have clearly come down from their peaks, uh, say, uh, you know, earlier uh, six weeks ago or so. But we still have a lot of people in the hospital. Um, We still have a inpatient census uh, at Bloomington Hospital that's significant in double digits. Uh, and, uh, you know, still some people who are critically ill in intensive care and so forth. If you look at the numbers, oh, um, the, the uh, current hospitalizations statewide are about uh, 1,300 people in hospital for COVID in the state of Indiana. And if you go back to June, when we hit our nadir, when we were looking really good, we had about 380 people in the hospital. So we're still our plateauing, if you will, at sort of a higher than comfortable level. Um, Still a fair amount of transmission, still a fair amount of new cases. Um, It is exciting that uh, children now can become vaccinated at five to 11 age group. Um, I know that the pediatricians are enthusiastic about getting uh, children vaccinated. And, uh, uh, you know, and I, and I, have talked with parents and, and uh, although I'm not a pediatrician, I've certainly talked with many of them about their concerns and whether they want to get their kids vaccinated or not. And I think a lot of the hesitancy is that the illness in children in general tends to be mild. Uh, There is a serious complication uh, that kids can get called multi-system inflammatory syndrome. And we've had 120 some kids with that here in the state of Indiana and several thousand uh, around the country with that and that can be quite serious, but most of the time younger children do okay and they recover uneventfully, but the vaccine offers a lot of benefits the vaccine uh, prevents that that illness uh, that can be serious but it also prevents transmission. And what we found with the Delta strain is that young kids do indeed transmit that virus just as readily as adults do. And so vaccinating the kids will help to prevent them transmitting it to other individuals and keep them in school, prevent them from transmitting it to perhaps younger children in the household, which will create havoc with school. And and if there's one thing we've seen this past year, that the disruption in kids being able to go to school with their education, with socialization is an important thing. And the vaccine can help with that a lot. All right. I want to ask Amy Meek, is the, uh, is IU Health ready to provide these vaccinations and um, what should parents know about them? Yeah. So first I want to just clarify, you know, my department and our role. So our Our clinic is called the Monroe County Public Health Clinic. So it's actually a collaboration of the health department and IU Health Bloomington Hospital. So while we are the hospital, we're the health department uh, nursing division as well. So it's that collaboration. And and yes, we've been preparing this for this for some time now. Um, We're super excited that kids can get vaccinated. It's going to mean a lot for our schools. Of course, we want to support them to stay open, but also to keep just those normal activities and extracurricular things and gatherings that we know are good for kids. So getting vaccinated will help them to be safe this winter and be able to continue to do that. We've been working on a process to vaccinate within our schools 
So this is something that isn't really new for us. We do this actually every year. We've been doing it for several years now for flu vaccines. We go to our local schools. We send consents home ahead of time. Parents can fill those consents out and send them back to school. And then we come in and vaccinate during the school day when parents don't have to miss work or uh, make those appointments and wait in lines, things like that. So we've already done that with flu this year. We've already done that with our 12 and older kids. We actually have one more week and then we finish that up. So we'll be making another round now and doing those five to 11 year olds. So that's one place that parents can get their kids vaccinated if they're in Monroe County, if they go to MCCSC or RBB school. Um, we might be going to other schools, but right now those are the only two uh, confirmed that are set up. So we'll be at all of those schools before the holiday break so they can at least get that first dose in before the holiday break and get their second dose when they come back from break in the classroom. We do all have right. some other options too though. Okay, uh, what are the other options? So we're setting up a couple mass clinics and uh, one of those is gonna be at the Edgewood Primary School and that is open to any five to 11 year old. So they can be a student at any school. They don't have to go to Edgewood. That's on November 18th. That's gonna be from four to 7 p.m. And then another mass clinic will be at uh, the Bloomington High School South Cafeteria that Saturday, November 20th from eight to two. So if they attend that mass clinic, we'll be going back three weeks later and getting that second dose in. So they would then get both doses in before the break if they attended those. All right. Katie Head is an IUPUI Associate Professor of Communications who specializes in how people communicate about vaccines. I know there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of information and a lot of misinformation about uh, COVID-19 vaccines. Can you sort of give us an overview of how, um, affect, how, how can parents learn the best about uh, these vaccines and how can they communicate with their providers, their, you know, their physicians, as well as their own children? Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the most interesting things about COVID, about the coverage of this pandemic, and especially the coverage of the development of the vaccine, is this is the media coverage is unprecedented, right? We've never watched a disease emerge, a vaccine go into clinical trials, a vaccine come out and be ready for public use. Uh, in a less than two year period with everybody's eyes on every part of that process. And so there's a lot more scrutiny. There's a lot more coverage. There's a lot more information out there, um, which, you know, not everybody is health and science literate. So even making sense of some of that can be difficult sometimes. And then there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there. So it is difficult to sort through all of the information and make sense of it and, and know what is good information and what is bad information. Um, one of the things that we advise when it comes to other pediatric vaccinations is how incredibly important it is to talk to your own healthcare provider. Um, and with COVID, again, it's sort of turned everything on its head. You know, for the most part, when we have a population of people, we're going to have a lot of them who are ready to get vaccinated, right? I echo all the other talk uh, speakers on, um, on the show right now, how excited I am hearing about all of these parents getting to call and set up appointments for their kiddos. Um, and that's great. And those people we will catch with these mass clinics and with these school clinics, but it's those vaccine hesitant parents where with other pediatric vaccinations, we know how incredibly important a strong healthcare provider's recommendation is. And unfortunately with the rollout of the COVID vaccine, primary care offices, pediatricians offices have been somewhat removed from the rollout process. Now more and more clinics are getting the COVID vaccine into their offices, but I was just speaking with a friend yesterday. She called her pediatrician's office and they said, oh, sorry, we're not gonna be a site. So it, it's, it's complicated because I think our most trusted source of vaccine information, those pediatricians, those primary care providers um, are a little bit removed from sort of the COVID vaccination rollout. All right, Sarah. Yeah, Dr. Osmalis, I wanna ask you just about the side effects for this. Is, this. is this going to be similar to some of the things that adults experienced after getting the vaccine? 
Um, there are side effects in younger kids who get vaccinated, but they're very mild. They tend to be less than what the adults have noticed. The dose of the uh, uh, Pfizer vaccine for children is one third that of the adult dose. And yet, you know, still, uh, we certainly get a lot of questions and concerns about some of the potentially more serious side effects of vaccinations. The, the questions I've gotten most often are about risks of myocarditis, which is like, you know, heart inflammation and so forth. And indeed, you know, there have been a few cases reported for every million doses administered. Uh, they, you know, have resolved uneventfully and they've been fine. And I think when people focus on some of those side effects, they lose track of the fact that those, many of those same side effects are real side effects of the uh, viral infection itself, um, not just perhaps the side effects of a vaccine. So with respect to the myocarditis, for example, I, I believe in this uh, study of uh, you know, young children, they had 10 or so cases of uh, myocarditis per 100,000 population, I'm sorry, per million population. Um, but the incidence of that complication following COVID itself is a hundred times greater. So it is much, much safer to get vaccinated than to get the vaccine, uh, than, uh, much, much safer to be vaccinated than to get COVID in terms of some of those side effects that people worry about. I know we got a question this morning. We, we get questions every day on, uh, you know, to our, our city limits project. And we got one this morning that um, suggested, and I guess I'm going to start this with, with Dr. Rismalis to uh, maybe Graham can weigh in. Well, any of you can weigh in, but it essentially said um, how many children have, or how, how many patients have been have died because they have gotten the COVID vaccine or how many have gotten sick because they have gotten the COVID vaccine. And the, the questioner went ahead to say that we probably wouldn't look into that too deeply. So I'm just going to ask you, uh, Dr. Dr. Rosmales, is this a legitimate concern? Well, you know, people always hear about the rare event and there have been uh, some individuals who have uh, died following COVID vaccinations. Now, whether those are directly related to the vaccine or a consequence of other inflammation or complications um, with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine with respect to blood clots, with, um, uh, with the mRNA vaccines with respect to uh, allergy or anaphylaxis, but they are extremely rare. And uh, we have, you know, vaccinated tens of thousands of people here locally with no serious side effects at all. And so it is a, it is a perception, you know, when you hear about one case that's frightening or scary or scary to somebody, but people lose track that the, the risks, uh, they, they lose track that we are weighing risks and that the risk of living your life unvaccinated is much greater than any rare, rare risk of a, a serious side effects from a vaccine. From a vaccine. All right, thank you. I'm I'm going to uh, do something a little unusual and ask Sarah Whitmire to uh, what to to come back on because Sarah is a mother of a child who is now eligible to be vaccinated. And Sarah, I know. You know, you must have, as a parent, you must have questions. You've got all these experts on here. So what are the <laughs> questions you have as a parent? Well, I asked one of my first ones because my kiddo has been very worried about the possibility of getting it at school and then accidentally throwing up at school because it made him sick. So uh, that will be refreshing. The one thing is, um, I wonder about signing up for it. I mean, you hit on the part about not being able to go to your pediatrician's office, but for myself personally, when I went to sign up to get him vaccinated, the earliest appointment I could get here locally was December 22nd. So I guess I just wonder about that. And is it going to be really difficult to get people vaccinated in a in like a quick manner? Are we going to be well into flu season before we can really get a lot of kids vaccinated? Well, Sarah, I can probably answer that. 
So this vaccine, while it's a third of the dose of the Pfizer vaccine, it is packaged differently and it had to roll out differently. So we've received the vaccine at our clinic, but a lot of the clinics haven't quite received the vaccine yet. So there won't be those openings on the website until they actually receive the vaccine. So for example, if you look now, you probably don't see very many locations uh, such as your pharmacies available, but they will be available once they receive the vaccine. So I would encourage everyone to continue to look at the rshot.in.gov because more sites will continue to open up as more vaccine is received. The mass clinics that I mentioned earlier, those will be on that website as well, but they're not up yet. So we're hoping any minute now that they will appear on there. So I would just continue to watch that website and, and hopefully we'll see a lot of appointments become available. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo the call for patients being an anxious parent myself, uh, knowing that the, the right now, you know, the federal government actually has suspended all shipment of adult vaccine and they're only shipping pediatric vaccine right now. And it should all be out at the federal level, I think, before or around July 9th. Um, so you're starting to see, I was checking this morning, some um, national pharmacy chains just now starting to come online in Indiana. So um, to Amy's point, those should open up once they get it. So we just, I think we need to be a little patient here in the first few days, but there should be a lot more appointments opening up soon. Can, can any of you speak to whether this is likely to become a required vaccine that kids have to get like when they start kindergarten or like that. I think it would make some sense. I just don't see that in Indiana uh, politically anytime soon, honestly. Um, and yeah, we can debate the risk to children uh, being lower, but it's not not zero, of course. Um, I've had 2 million children ages 5 to 11 that have had COVID. Um, we've had, you know, 8,300 hospitalizations in that age group. 30% of those 5 to 11 year olds didn't have underlying conditions. So the risk isn't zero. And, you know, I think it's worth pointing out um, when we look at other vaccine preventable diseases, ones that are required to go to daycare, pre-K uh, pre and K through 12, um, aren't necessarily as deadly even for children as COVID is. I mean, we, we immunize against hep A, uh, which has, you know, had three deaths per year in this age group prior to recommendation of vaccine. Meningitis B had eight, varicella had 16, rubella 17, rotavirus 20, COVID-19, that's 66. So it is much more deadly, uh, even for children, than a lot of these vaccines that we do require. So it makes sense to do it. I just don't see it happening soon. I'd like to add that, you know, whether we do a mandate or whether we, uh, you know, combine that, of course, with a lot of health promotion and, and mass clinics and all sorts of things, um, we have a long way to go. Um, if you look at the statistics for Indiana, um, as of this week, only about 36% of 12 to 17 year olds have been vaccinated against COVID. And that's been since early summer. So, you know, we're seeing all these people rush to get appointments and that's great. But um, we, we also know that the younger the child, the less likely a parent is to get them the COVID vaccine. So we're likely to see even lower rates for our five to 11 year olds. So, um, you know, mandates, public health programming, mass vaccination clinics, you know, there, there's going to need to be a lot of work done to get our child COVID vaccines up to even at least where our, our adult vaccination levels are. Graham, how is this vaccine different in terms of what's in it? And I guess maybe the second part of that is then why is just the Pfizer one approved for kids? Good question. Um, it's it's the same in, in the sense of the basic ingredients, the mechanism, the mRNA that's being used. It's at a different dosage. So those 5 to 11 are going to get a 10 microgram dose opposed to those 12 and over that get 30. Um, so uh, I didn't really realize initially until a couple of weeks ago that it is going to be in a different packaging. There's a different diluent that you have to use to mix it, which Pfizer, Amy can talk about more, is a little bit more complicated to manage than the other COVID vaccines. And, and Pfizer is just simply the furthest along. Um, they have the most data. They had a really great trial with thousands of children that showed 90.7% effectiveness against symptomatic infection, 100% protection against severe disease and hospitalization, and obviously death. Um, so they're just kind of the furthest along. Um, but to kind of hope, hopefully quell some people's fears, these groups, the, the BRPAC and FDA and ACIP at CDC, they look at this, this data so intensely. And they're, um, they, they do really balance those risks and benefits. And that's, you know, for example, the reason why we don't have a Moderna shot yet for 12 to 17 year olds, because they're still evaluating 
that very rare and minor risk of myocarditis uh, in, in that age group with that vaccine. Um, so that's just kind of how we are further along. Now, if we're going to get to vaccines below five, I wouldn't really anticipate that until maybe first quarter of 22. Um, but I think this cohort is so important to helping us uh, knock this down and becoming more of an endemic virus. We're about halfway through the, uh, the show already, and we have time to take questions from our audience. If you have a question, you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us um, on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us questions there. Uh, we can continue our conversation here because we have plenty to talk about. A couple of things that come to mind after we've been uh, talking, um, we have Dr. Tom Rasmalis with us, and I wanted to ask um, Tom, does it make sense for a parent whose kid is like 11 years old and nine months to wait until the kid, the child is 12 to get a, a, a heavier dose? Uh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know really. Uh, the, these vaccines uh, have excellent efficacy and we have not been dosing them based on body weight and such. We've been dosing them based on age. Um, I would expect even the lower dose to give good protection uh, right up until, uh, you know, at, at, into teen years. So, uh, no, I don't think I'd wait. I think I'd just go ahead and go and, and uh, get the dose that's recommended based on what your age is. And, and I would expect you would be fine. Okay, I wanted to ask uh, Katie Head to follow up a little bit on on the uh, because of the the communication piece of this is is hugely important. You talked about how much work there is still to do. Um, is there any evidence that that uh, or is it just anecdotal that the divisions we have in our country and the political divide and and whatnot have created um, a higher reluctance? toward this vaccine than perhaps other vaccines. Graham listed several other vaccines that children have to get now. Is Do you think the, the political structure we have now and the political divide we have now is getting in the way of, of this public health issue? That is a, a loaded question, Bob. Let me see if I can answer it. Um, so, I, didn't mean, I didn't mean for it to be loaded. No, but. no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to answer it. Um, so I've been studying um, vaccination for a while. I study, you know, adult vaccination. I study pediatric vaccinations. And each vaccine is a little different. People have different reasons. They might be hesitant or, or not. Um, but never has a vaccine been, uh, and people's willingness to get it and their acceptance of it been so tied to their political ideology. Um, we've done a, a couple of studies. Um, the Kaiser Foundation has been doing some tracking of Americans and their perceptions of the COVID vaccine. And um, we, we are starting to see a, a significant group of people who are reluctant to get the vaccine and, and conservative political ideology is definitely one of the, if not one of the strongest predictors of people's unlikelihood <laughs> to get the vaccine. Um, there, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, I'll speak to one of them. Um, we are all a product of our environment. And so as a communication scholar, I would tell you that the media we consume helps shape our reality. It shapes what we believe, it shapes what we understand. So I know listeners of your program, of course, are, you know, they're up to date on all the facts and all the great things, but um, we, we tend to consume media that fits with our viewpoints, that fits with our ideologies. And we get into what are called echo chambers. I know I'm getting very academic right now, but I'm sure your listeners could understand that and that we all sort of go to the same media. We go to the same social media groups. We go to the same TV shows. We go to the same radio stations and we continue to get similar messages such that we build up in our minds beliefs about things, including this vaccine. And so just the way that it rolled out during a very politically um, charged time in our country um, meant that it itself became a very political thing. Um, there are lots of ways we're trying to uh, address this. Um, but whereas at the beginning of the vaccine rollout, we were 
we were really worried about a couple of disparities. We were worried about racial minorities being um, unwilling to get the vaccine for a lot of really important cultural and historical reasons. We were worried about rural individuals being less likely to get the vaccine, um, both because of access, but also um, just because of some perceptions. But increasingly, it is our sort of middle-class white conservative groups um, across multiple studies that, that are showing unwillingness to get vaccinated. Um, and that is a problem because I, I think Graham mentioned earlier, you know, we are not, it, it's not like COVID is equal across groups and it's not like vaccination is equal across groups. Anytime we have a big group of unvaccinated people, those people are at risk. I wanna ask uh, Dr. Tom Rismalis and, and Amy Meek from the healthcare perspective. I mean, there is, there, I, I'm under the assumption there really isn't a great divide among healthcare providers about the efficacy of these vaccines and that they should be um, appropriate in, in virtually all cases, not all cases, but virtually all cases, no matter what your um, political point of view is. Am I correct on that? Um, I'd like to, yes, you are correct. I would like to uh, say with respect to Katie's comments that she really hit it on the head and it's not entirely new. I mean, we've certainly seen hesitancy with respect to flu shots and other immunizations in the past, but that has almost become my greatest concern as we progress through this pandemic that I do not want the public in general to discount the value of immunization, not only for COVID, but for that to spill over into questioning a lot of the other immunizations and vaccines that we give to prevent disease. I mean, that those the, the, the vaccination programs we have are among the greatest achievements of public health ever. These are fantastically successful. And uh, I think perhaps we do need to make changes in the way we communicate. It struck me as we were rolling out COVID vaccines that, uh, and I'm not sure exactly how to say this properly, but watching, you know, the governor or watching, uh, you know, uh, CDC representatives getting a shot on TV is no longer the best way to convince people uh, of their safety. You know, we need to do better, I think, in terms of communication. Um, but yes, from a healthcare standpoint, these are wonderful, and uh, these vaccines are wonderful. And I would, you know, I feel strongly that all healthcare workers certainly should be immunized. Yeah, I do think that's interesting because a lot of healthcare workers are seeking exemptions. Maybe a lot isn't fair, but I know we've done some reporting about IU health data and, and things. Did you want to weigh in on that, Amy? Yeah, well, I would agree with everything Dr. Hersmala said. Uh, I do worry about complacency as well. Most of us, you know, we don't have to worry about even normal uh, communicable diseases like measles and things. We, it just doesn't happen because we have a well-vaccinated community. And I won't say it doesn't happen. It does happen, but very rarely. And so, you know, we come almost kind of spoiled, not realizing what we're protected from. And that is definitely a concern of our clinic, just with the pandemic by itself, you know, people have gotten a little behind on all their immunizations this last couple of years because they just haven't gone for wellness type visits and things like that, like maybe they normally would. So that's certainly um, a concern and, and hopefully we can help get everyone caught up on those vaccines as well in the coming months. Hey, we got another question in from Wendy and I'm going to apologize in advance because some of these medical terms I might mispronounce. Um, but she asks, is it important for those giving COVID inoculations to aspirate the serum, i.e. draw it back to make sure it doesn't draw blood and that it's not gone into a vein? Is it true that if the vaccine goes into a vein, myocarditis is more possible or likely? Um, I, Dr. Tom, maybe, what do you think? Can you take that one or? Um, it, it's interesting because I've asked some of the nurses as they've been administering vaccine about their technique and, uh, you know, and oftentimes, um, 
some some nurses will aspirate back. But I'm not aware of any data that suggests that tiny amounts of inter, inter uh, uh, tiny amounts of vaccine that makes its way into a you know a small vein in in the muscle increases the risk of myocarditis. So no, I don't think that that's true. And uh, uh, there are no you know if the vaccine is properly administered into a muscle, uh, there's no you know, large venous structures in those, in, in the, in that muscular tissue. So um, I think uh, it's not uh, necessary to aspirate back. And I don't think that that's going to lead to any increased risk of complications. The standard practice for all vaccinations is not to necessarily aspirate. Uh, some of us have been nurses for a lot of years when we were first um, early nurses, that was standard practice, but now it's not. Okay, thank you. Thank you both. Uh, another question is, will children have to get booster shots sooner because they are getting a smaller dose? Graham, do you want to address that? Uh, I just, I don't know if we're there yet or what, what we really know. Um, and that has not been part of any of the EUAs for pediatric vaccines. So at this time, uh, I would say uh, that's an unknown. Uh, but we also know that that smaller dose is highly effective. And, and kids in this age group have pretty um, spunky immune systems and respond quite well. Um, and so I don't think that'll be necessary. Now, um, you know, over time, I think there's some vaccine effectiveness that wanes. I think that was a little clouded over the summer because it was also marked the arrival of Delta, which does seem to evade vaccines a little bit more in terms of its ability to cause symptomatic infection. Um, but of course, they're still wonderful against protecting against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. So I think time will tell. Um, these viruses, the, the type of beta coronaviruses, they don't, they mutate, but they don't mutate as frequently as some others. Um, so it might be something we see down the road, but uh, something we'll have to just kind of keep an eye on. Um, things might look much differently this summer in terms of community spread. It might be very low. There might be very little COVID circulating or who knows, we could be in the midst of, you know, like the Mu variant wave that evades vaccines more easily. So uh, time will tell us on that. But I think the key now, uh, and I think our focus needs to remain, not only this new cohort that's eligible, but all those millions of Americans that have chosen not to be vaccinated, right? Uh, I think we need to keep our focus there. Um, yesterday, we hit 750,000 deaths due to COVID. We're on track to hit 800,000 by the end of the year. Um, so those last 100, maybe 200,000 people um, died unnecessarily because the vaccines are widely available. So first step is, is getting immunized, getting that first dose if you don't have one. We have a couple more questions that have come in. Questions, uh, this one starts with a comment, says on November 5th of last year, so a year ago today, hospitalizations were at 2001. Uh, that continued to increase until it hit 3,460. Uh, on November 30th, yesterday, hospitalizations were at 1,269. Not sure what this refers to statewide or locally or what, probably not locally. Um, They've been declining since September. What should this tell us? Are we going to see cases continue to decline or do we anticipate another wave? Dr. Rismos? Yeah, so those are statewide numbers. Okay. Um, yeah, just uh, about uh, 1,300 uh, uh, hospitalizations currently for uh, COVID. You know, predicting into the future, uh, who knows? My guess is that we probably will not see a large spike as we saw with the Delta wave or as we saw last year in November and December. I'm at least hopeful of that because we've got a fair number of people vaccinated and we've had a fair number of people infected. Um, that said, there's still too many people who have had neither. They've not been infected and they're not protected by immunization. And so I suspect we will probably bounce around over with similar numbers as we have now, hopefully not increasing dramatically, but I don't think it's going to go to zero either. I think we're going to continue to have hospitalizations and deaths and illness um, because we're just not quite where we need to be uh, in terms of immunization. 
I can follow up on that with you and, and anyone else that wants to weigh in. Last year at this time, I think we did a program talking about uh, the the anticipated problems of Thanksgiving gatherings, uh, Christmas holiday gatherings, because people were going to get together and they were going to become some were going to become super spreader events. Um, we are, it sounds like you're saying, uh, Dr. Ismalis, that we're better off now than we were a year ago, but is there any cause for concern? What would you, what would you say to people who are going to gather together to celebrate, uh, the Thanksgiving holiday here in a couple of weeks? Yeah, always, you know, difficult because these are all judgment calls, but, um, I would think that if you're getting together with other vaccinated individuals in a group family setting, you probably are pretty safe. Um, but um, there's still a lot of transmission, particularly in certain areas around the state. And so if you, uh, if you are unvaccinated and you're uh, attending you know, large uh, groups where there's unvac- other unvaccinated individuals, I think that has some risks associated with it. So uh, family Thanksgiving, vaccinated family members, I think you're probably pretty good. You know, just because we have Katie head on from a different, uh, from a communications perspective, it it does seem like a lot of people have, you know, a year, a year after, you know, a year later from when we talked about this last year, people are probably have probably relaxed and probably thinking about their Thanksgiving dinner. Do you think there's a still a communication issue that we need to be paying attention to to make sure that people understand who they're getting together with yeah and it's difficult to navigate some of those conversations you know in my family um you know for our big family gatherings there's a you're not allowed in the door if you're not vaccinated because we have 95 year old grandparents right so um, navigating those family and friend conversations can be difficult, but I think we have to encourage people to, to draw the line where they're comfortable, um, ask people if they're vaccinated, let them know your rules and your boundaries and how you're trying to keep your family safe. Um, so, yeah. We have another question that just came in uh, that's directed to you and anybody else that wants to comment. What mistakes do you see media making and how they cover the virus? Any frustrations you see with the headlines and with what comes out on social media? Yeah, well, you know, I think especially social media. I mean, we we finally have some of our big social media companies acting um, to take down, you know, vaccine misinformation. Um, some of the media coverage, I think, could focus a little bit more on um we see a lot about statistics, right? And we've purported on a lot of them here in this um, show today, but but many people um, respond really well to what we call narratives. So understanding people's stories about how they've had to deal with COVID, the effect it's had on their life. I think about a lot of the people I know who have long COVID and what they're dealing with. And so I think when we can have media coverage that better reports on those sort of narratives, those patient stories and family stories of what people have gone through. That could be a really powerful way for people to understand how impactful this disease is on people. You know, some of us are not numbers people and that's okay, but all of us respond well to stories. So I think if I could just ask the media to do one thing, I think would be to really maybe try to up the the narrative side of the toll of COVID. We got a question about masks and after we get more kids vaccinated, if masks and other precautions will still be necessary in schools. I think a lot lot of that's going to depend on, I think, the level of community spread at the time. Um, And currently, you know, the CDC recommends indoor masking uh, anywhere where there is based on their metrics, which are based on positivity in cases uh, per capita where we have higher substantial transmission. And that's every single county in Indiana right now. Of course, there's only one county in Indiana that has a a local um, indoor mask mandate in Monroe County. Um, So I I think it's gonna take some time. We also need to realize, um, I don't think all 28 million children are gonna go out and get vaccinated. I think there's gonna be this big push, but then I think we're gonna run into hesitancy uh, via parents like we've seen with adults as well. Um, And then, you know, I think it's just gonna take some time uh, 
to get, I mean, it takes five, six weeks. Well, with Pfizer, it takes five weeks to be fully vaccinated as well. So that's going to take us into next year. Um, and then we'll see what happens with winter. Uh, but also the county metrics uh, and the state metrics are determining when our local order expires as well. And so we were trending very well, like uh, many places declining. We had uh, some really good cases per capita last week. We were blue in Monroe County in terms of the two metric score, uh, but we are yellow again this week. And you have to meet and maintain that 5% or less positivity rate and the 99 or less uh, new weekly cases per 100,000 for two weeks before you turn to that blue advisory. And so that's part of the, the goal that's written in the local health order. So once we reached that, we were partway there. And where I think the county was smart, um, they added not only being blue, but because the CDC and the state, of course, is another thing I think we have communication problems with is everybody has their own set of metrics or tying things to different metrics. The CDC has a lower threshold for community transmission than the state does. And so that's why you see in that health order that we need to be blue and we need to have 50 new weekly cases per 100,000, because that would put us in that uh, moderate level, according to the CDC. And then at that point, we'd be yellow, according to the CDC, blue in Indiana, and, and be uh, no longer be recommended by the CDC to do indoor masking. Um, so, But I think it's going to take a lot longer to get there uh, than maybe we'd thought. Um, just for example, today, Monroe County announced 50 new cases today. Well, if our goal is 50 new weekly cases per 100,000, um, it's going to be several weeks, I think, until we see that. All these colors are kind of, uh, they're, they're simple in some ways, but they're complicated in some ways, because I know I was looking at the state map, saw Monroe County in the blue, the only one in the blue for the last I guess it was a week and a half and now we're back in the yellow. So it's, it's, it's complicated. Kinda... It's clear as mud. It's um, you know, we've had some really bad science communication, some bad public health communication in the last couple of years and it's confusing as ever. And um, we could go into the, the boosters and the different recommendations for that. It's equally as confusing. Well, I do have, I do have to say we have about five minutes to go. So if uh, somebody has a question out there, you can probably still slip it in. We have one question that I think would be, uh, should go to Dr. Rismalis and to, um, to Amy Meek about the healthcare community. And the question just is, how is the healthcare community holding up? I mean, we've, we've had the pandemic now for, I mean, the, the effects of the pandemic within the the greater community and more specifically the healthcare community for getting on close to two years now. How's the, how's the healthcare community holding up? Um, I, uh, I think overall very well. I cannot say that it has not been a stress and a strain. Um, uh, you know, the, um, the critical care physicians, the hospitalists, the uh, hospital nurses, uh, respiratory therapists, um, all, you know, all that staff has been, has been stressed, has been working long hours, have had to restrict or decrease some of the care that they would give to other patients in order to commit their attention uh, to the, to the COVID uh, epidemic and the, and the COVID patients. And so clearly has been stressful, but um, I've been very impressed. I mean, people step up, people volunteer, uh, people uh, work extra shifts and uh, and are happy to do it and can consider it part of their responsibility. So uh, I think overall doing very well. Um, All right. And it's been really amazing to watch everyone step up um, and just, you know, cover shifts and work departments who didn't normally work and do whatever it's, is necessary I think it's, it's good when we started this that we didn't know how long we'd be in this or else that it would have been really extra daunting. But, um, you know, every time that, you know, more vaccinations roll out or those numbers in the community start going down, that light at the end of the tunnel just gets a little bit brighter. So I, I think, um, again, everyone who's, who's working in healthcare is just, this is what they do and, and they've been doing a great job and continue to do that. All right. I want to give you each about a minute to sort of wrap this up. And I want to start with with Amy. I know you, you've got a lot of work ahead of you in 
getting these vaccinations for children now. Can you sort of remind us, and you already talked about this before, what's your strategy? Yes, yeah, so those mass clinics that will be on the rshop.in.gov site anytime now, uh, those are at Edgewood and at um, MCCSC, but those are open to anyone ages 5 to 11. Uh, there's also, if you just go to that site again, you'll see other options. So keep watching as vaccine gets more shipped, more pharmacies will be available. There'll be a lot more opportunity in the community to get vaccines at other locations. Our office is still open every day giving vaccines. But again, you go to that same website for all of this. So I would continue to just watch that website if you're wanting to get an earlier appointment. There are places outside of the county. Um, the Speedway is a fun place to go and they're doing drive uh, through vaccines there. So you can sign up for a vaccine at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and that might be just a fun family adventure. Their appointments for five to 11 year olds are until 8 p.m. at night and on Saturdays. So um, I would just encourage everyone to keep watching that website. And as we are able to open up more and more appointments, that's where you'll find it at. All right. We only have about a minute to go. So I want to ask uh, Dr. Tom Rasmalis to, to take, us, take us to the end here. How, um, you know, you, you sounded, you sound a little more confident than sometimes and a little more upbeat than, than sometimes about how things are going. Are we, I know we're not out of the woods yet, but how optimistic are you? Um, I, I am optimistic. I think we will, we will, you know, we're, continue, we're making very good progress. I would remind people about the booster doses for adults, individuals over age 65 and those with other chronic medical illnesses. Those have been working very well have decreased the risk of breakthrough infections, decreased the risk of hospitalizations and deaths. And so getting that third dose, that booster, focus on that. We've got new things coming up that are being looked at. You'll be hearing news about there are at least a couple different oral medicines for COVID that will be looked at by the FDA in the next uh, few months. And those may be important as well. Um, you know, think back where we were, you know, a year and a half ago when we were talking about, we don't have any tests, you know, how do you make a diagnosis? Uh, we don't have any treatments. You know, we're enormously better off now than we were then. We have lots of other options and we can prevent this um, with the vaccines and with boosters. So I'm encouraged. It's not over yet. We still have to maintain our focus, but we're getting there. All right. I want to thank you all for being here. We are out of time. We had a lot of questions today. Thank you to Katie Head, to Dr. Tom Rasmalis, Graham McKean, and Amy Meek, all for being here with us to help update us on what's going on with COVID, especially since children are now eligible to get the vaccine. For co-hosts Sarah Whitmire, producers Holden Abshear and Benta Boutier, and John Bailey, our engineer, I'm Bob Salzberg, and Aaron Kane, who sat in for John Bailey today. This has been Noon Edition. Thank you for listening.